before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Well, before we get to our conversation with Peter Enns, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes including interviews with multiple guests from this summer's General Assembly, a place at a table featuring Maggie Kane, a pay-what-you-can restaurant in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, and an interview with former White House advisor to Barack Obama, Michael Ware. And now, on to our conversation. The, the problem is, if I don't hit record, I don't have a big enough name behind it. If you don't hit record, you can always call people and say, yeah, we need to do that again. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Once I forgot to hit record on myself. That's awesome. I was recording a, a solo podcast and I had to do it all over again. But um, <laughs> so now I'm really careful. You learn and you don't do that again. Well, that that might be a good place to introduce you if that's okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest for this week's episode is Dr. Peter Enns. Uh, Pete is a biblical scholar, a theologian, and a writer. Uh, for many theologians and pastors, uh, Pete came storming onto the scene in 2005 with his inspiration incarnation. Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament. He's authored the best-selling book, The Bible Tells Me So, The Evolution of Adam, and The Sin of Certainty. Uh, he is a professor of biblical studies at Eastern University and the co-host of the Bible from Normal People podcast, to which he was confessing that even at his level of success, sometimes forgets to hit record. Uh, so yeah, that's not, I don't have any technological success. That's the problem. So, you know. <laughs> Stick, stick with theology and biblical criticism, right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Enns, thanks for joining the conversation. Sure. Happy. Happy to be here. So uh, it, it, the thought uh, saddens me of someone listening to this podcast and hadn't read your, your work because they've been robbed of the opportunity to engage in critical discernment and engage in, I would say, an adventure of rethinking our theological assumptions. So... Mm-hmm. Knowing your story, um, I can't help but sense um, how it informs your writing style and the way that you engage the topics in your book. So, so for those that aren't familiar with your story, can, we, can you take us into uh, Westminster Theological Seminary and Inspiration of Incarnation? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, just 
maybe backing up a little bit from that first. I, you know, I was always sort of a curious person, you know, just even when I was very young, like you know, a lot of people are something special, but, um, and I just really got into trying to learn about my faith more, even after college. I mean, I went to a Christian college and Messiah College, which is out in central Pennsylvania. And, um, but it, it took a little, a few months after that to start thinking about, you know, just, I want to, I want to know more about what I think I believe in. And that eventually led me to seminary and um, which was a Westminster Theological Seminary outside of Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, that's where I just sort of really got into a lot of stuff. And I started thinking and reading and, and all sorts of stuff like that. And it, it was good because I went into this with a curious mindset and not really looking for particular kinds of answers, but just, you know, being in the generally Christian world and but just thinking deeply about the bible and interpretation and church history and all sorts of stuff like that so so all that was fine uh and then going to graduate school after that that opened up a bigger world for me one that i was already aware of and somewhat interested in because you know there's a whole world of biblical scholarship that i was reading while i was in seminary and, you know, sometimes they said things that my professor said, well, they're wrong because, you know, they're making all these assumptions that we can't really hold on to. But it's actually going someplace to a research university and and listening to people who really don't have an agenda against you or against God. In fact, some of them are pretty religious people and hearing them explain the Bible in ways that like immediately make sense. and sort of deconstruct these tender brittle even arguments that you know you've been given up to that point and so you know that's for me started just a lot of exploration and wanting to sort of explore horizons to see you know what is the bible anyway and what do i do with it and that's not a bad i'm still asking that question now it's been you know 30 years or so so i mean that's sort of how the whole thing started. But then when I left graduate school, I came back to teach at Westminster and things were okay for a while. But, uh, you know, it's, it is a kind of setting where there's a lot of value placed on maintaining an orthodox tradition, which is a complicated thing even to talk about, because there's a good side to that, not so good side to that. But, um, you know, long and short of it is that I kept growing as a thinker and as a scholar and at the same time, the school was somewhat shrinking in its willingness to engage certain things. The, the school shifted a lot since the time I got there until, you know, a few years afterwards. And, uh, you know, that led to just difficulties at work for me. And at the same time, and these are things I talk about in The Sin of Certainty, um, also just uh, issues at home with one of my children who needed some a lot of you know uh, help and support outside the home and that resulted in her leaving home for about 16 months uh, for the most part and and it's you know the professional life and the personal life both sort of came crumbling <laughs> at the same time and to me that was the beginning of a wake-up call and then a journey to uh, you know not think that I can control all of this with my head 
and you know and not thinking that I'm going to have the right answers and then proceed on the basis of that, but more just keeping the hands open a little bit and looking out for what God is doing and and being willing to explore and to change if need be and all those things. So I'd say life sort of got in the way of you know what I thought I would be doing, which is pretty much I've got a handle on all this Jesus stuff, and I'm just going to you know nip and tuck a little bit here and there. But instead, there was a rather big upheaval for me, and uh, I have to say, you know, Andy, I'm thankful for that <laughs> upheaval. It's it's you know spiritually, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me to just let go of that need to control God and to control the Bible. Well, we'll touch back down on sin and certainty here, you know, in just a bit, but you know. Yeah. We both shouldn't be surprised that those who ask questions and come away with a theologically a minority position have 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 had hardship and criticism. And um, you know what's fascinating to me about your writing is that you just put yourself out there—not just your your uh, your theological questions, but you put your personal story out there. And um, you know, for many that are asking those questions, it gives a sense of authenticity to what you are writing and what you're asking. But certainly for those that want to critique your work, um, it, it seems to be giving them fodder. So, so what, what's behind the approach to just putting your story out there along with, with the questions you're asking? Well, I think, you know, theology comes from experience, I think. And, and how we think about God, how we process a life of faith is never really a sort of a detached thing. Even if we try to make it that sooner or later, it stops being that it really comes out of your whole experience and just who you are. So I figure, you know, when I write, why not just sort of say that? And, and I know that there are other people who think that as well. So just sort of throw it out there and, and, you know, people generally appreciate it. And, and some, you know, like you said, they might not, but that's okay. I mean, you know, if you write about god or the bible or christianity somebody's gonna not like what you say you know but um i just i just don't want this to sort of come out of a place of see i mean here's the irony if i if i weren't vulnerable i would be sort of feigning control again you know like i'm on top i get this i'm gonna now pontificate to the rest of you i want i want people to truly understand because i know they're going through the same stuff that this comes from the bottom up, not from the top down. And it's, it's the experiences that have led me to want to rethink some things theologically and interpretively. And, uh, you know, I don't really know how else to do that. You know, uh, I mean, to me, there's nothing more, that's a, this is an exaggeration. There are a few things more tedious than listening to someone talk about God or their or the Christian faith in an abstract sense where they don't seem to have a lot of evidence of their own having really really struggled with it and I think most people do struggle with faith at some point or another and instead just sort of keep it detached I'm in control and I'm the expert kind of thing you know um it's ironically my my quote expertise in certain things that have led me to see that I really don't have expertise in things. <laughs> you know, you, you, the deeper you dig, the more you realize, my goodness, this is endless. You know, and, um, so yeah, I, I write the way I think I just am as a person, and you know, I 
people who know me and who know my voice, when they read my stuff, they say, I can hear your voice and what you're writing. And to me, that's like the biggest compliment I could get as a writer is that I'm not putting on airs or acting like something I'm not. And, you know, some people don't always, you know, like the sense of humor thing that I do, but you know, I'm not trying to do it. That's just, I just sort of do it. That's just who I am. And, you know, again, not everyone is necessarily going to like it or some will think it's okay, but not like it that much. And all that is fine. You know, it's, they're different people and different personalities and different points of view and, and, and all that is fine. You know, I just, I'll just keep being who I am and use the word authentic, which is an important word for me. I do, I do want to maintain authenticity and, and, not feeling I have to put on a different face when I talk about God or the Bible publicly. You know, I mean, what's that's to me, that's, that's a disastrous thing. You've got this bifurcation in your soul at that point. And, you know, I, I just don't want to do that. Well, probably one of the most important facts that you've identified for us is that, man, you can never make anybody happy in this world. Somebody's always going to find something wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Especially if, you're living in a Christian world or, I mean, you know, there's just whatever community or sub-community we're in, but you're living in a Christian context where ideas are the most important thing. And then when you have different ideas, that's when people, you know, they're threatened by them or for whatever reason, they just don't like them and feel they need to be suppressed. And, you know, ideas are great. I write books about ideas and that's what I do, but you know, it, when those ideas become almost a substitute for the real thing, you know, our articulations of God become actually, in a sense, equated with God. I think that's where the problem comes in. And, and, and people do hold to their ideas, you know, very tightly because those ideas help them make sense of their world. And I understand that. But again, part of my experience in life is that that God is always sort of always out ahead of us and there are always surprises around the bend and you have to be willing to be more flexible with what you think because that, you know, that is going to change through life and maybe that's okay. At least I hope it is. I'm in deep trouble if it's not, but that's right. <laughs> you're, t- you're too many books into this to back out now. <laughs> I know I can't back out now. I have a track record. Yeah. Well, not, not only are you writing on it, but uh, I mean, you have taught extensively in higher education, you know, so uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, Princeton Theological Seminary, Harvard Divinity School, Fuller Theological Seminary, Lutheran Theological Seminary, just on and on and on and on. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you know this, but you have the profound task of forming the next generation of, of clergy. So as, as, you, as you enter into the laboratory, if you will, uh, on a daily basis with those that are sensing a calling to uh, to lead the church in whatever form that might be. What what gives you hope about this new generation of clergy? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, a, a lot of my teaching has been at the seminary level. And, you know, that, that I stopped, though, back in 2008. That's 10 years ago. And since 2012, I've been teaching undergraduate. And they're very different populations, as you can imagine. Um, I think, you know, uh, in terms of hope for the future for clergy, I have to be honest, I really think it's more a matter of what kind of person are you as a clergy person. And sometimes, you know, the, the denomination is set up to be 
very restrictive in thinking creatively about the future. And, you know, I, so I would think for me, it's more whether I have hope or not in certain theological movements in America, uh, those that are, you know, more wanting to sort of build boundaries around what they believe and others that are willing to, to explore new ways of articulating God or the nature of the faith. And I think to me, that's my hope is more there. But for clergy, you know, it just really depends on, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, it doesn't matter to me how talented a clergy, you know, man or woman you might be. If you're in a denomination that um, that closes doors very quickly, to me, that's that's not a hopeful situation. So, um, but, you know, and undergrads are so different because, you know, they're 18 and they're away from home for the first time. And that to me is even that's much more exciting to me than preparing people to be part of a system. I'm just talking to young people who want to have faith, don't know how they know what their parents taught them is nice, but they also have questions they can't really talk about in church or with youth group or whatever. And, you know, teaching young people that the Bible is worthy of their attention. And there are things in there just you know, theologically and spiritually, and just even just as literature that really, and they all hang together, those things. But, you know, just, just, this is not a children's book. This is not a pop-up book. This isn't Veggie Tales or, you know, some cartoon on the life of Moses. It's not, it's not like that. Those things are fine, but this is something that is worthy of their adult attention and a lifetime of attention of thinking clearly about this. And that can spill over into all sorts of things that they wind up doing with their lives, not just professionally, but personally, you know, so in a way, I think you can have a lot more influence at the undergraduate level than on the graduate level, you know, for, for teaching um, future pastors. Well, I love this idea of like parents, you know, conservative parents sending their, their child off to school in fear of what this liberal arts college might be teaching them, but then they can actually pick up your book and read it <laughs> to, to see some of the questions, uh, that you're, you're calling people to ask. And I think one of the aspects of your writing that inspires so many is that you're persistently inviting readers to, to rethink their theological assumptions. Um, and, and for me, this is no, no more evident than in The Sin of Certainty. Um, you wrote in the book, correct thinking provides a sense of certainty. Without it, we fear the faith that is on a support at best, dead and buried at worst. And who wants a dead and dying faith? So this fear of losing a handle on certainty leads to preoccupation with correct thinking, making sure that familiar beliefs are defended and support at all costs. For you, what about your personal journey led to the writing of this book? Um, I think just, you know, life and, uh, you know, what I mentioned earlier in terms of this confluence of basically all these quadrants in my life where there was no things had changed so much for me things had become so familiar both with struggles at home and struggles then at at school at, at Westminster that I just I, I came to a point where my ability to hold on to correct thinking had run completely out of gas and I, I just I, I began to sense intuitively that communing with God is there's always a rational component. We're, we're human beings, 
but it's it's much much more than that and of course i've heard that my whole life but i never heard that in terms of my actual training i never heard that in seminary and it wasn't pushed you know um when i was teaching there either you know that's just that's not a top drawer issue it's more you have to think correctly you have to be orthodox and you have to teach that to others if you teach something else you're wrong and you're going to get into trouble and that that whole way of looking at things began to feel so so empty and even tedious because you know life is messy and theology is messy and frankly the bible is messy and you know those are the things that sort of sort of pushing me towards just realizing that you know sometimes you feel certain and sometimes you don't and that's fine but you know the sin of certainty which is the title of the book is more about the sin of needing to be certain no matter what and even when that starts to crack a little bit to always want to go back to the way things were to the good old days when you had a handle on everything and i think that's that's the sin part in the sense that we're not accepting the challenge and i think the sacred responsibility to keep moving forward because you know i just think god is big you know, and bigger than we perceive. And when we confuse our own thinking about God, as I said before, with God, that's when we start running into some problems. Well, you, you invite people to deconstruct their faith as a natural part of our spiritual journey. But we, we seem to have had too many traditions uh, within the Christian movement that have called people away from deconstruction, away from doubt, um, almost putting the fear of God in people when it comes to doubt. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think we, we, we push people away from deconstruction and away from doubt? Well, I mean, my, my sense of why is that there, there's so much of the modern Western Christian faith that really is rooted in intellectual certainty. It really is rooted in that you've got to be certain. God wants to be certain. God wouldn't lie to you. And it all comes down to the Bible. You have a Bible that doesn't have errors, that's perfectly consistent, that gives you a perfect picture of God if you just pay attention to it. And this book is there so you can be certain. This book is there so you can know what you are supposed to believe and then believe it. So I think, you know, deconstruction is the enemy of that kind of mentality. And, you know, I think that has come out of right now, I guess, several hundred years of intellectual challenges to the Christian faith that go back to, you know, philosophers of the 17th century and 18th century, and then the rise of science, especially evolution, and the rise of biblical archaeology in the 19th century. All these things over the past few hundred years have undermined that Western confidence in intellectually grasping God. You know, and it's made life a little bit more difficult. And and I I welcome those deconstructive moments because it teaches us to separate our thinking about God from the real thing. But that's very threatening. You know, that deconstruction is very threatening to people who don't see that distance. You know, I joke around with people, you know, sometimes when it comes up and they, you know, I'll, I'll be saying something and they'll say, you know, Pete, you know, you're attacking the Bible. And I always say, I'm not attacking the Bible. I'm attacking you. The difference is you don't know, you know, you don't know the difference between those two. That's the problem we're dealing with. And those two things are not the same thing. And I think that's true. You know, how we think is just 
the starting point of truth. And if you diverge from that, well, you're wrong, you know, and, and I think, you know, life and, and challenges, and let's just use the word suffering, you know, it teaches you to be more relaxed about your own thoughts and to seek God's presence in ways that aren't limited to that. You know, that's, I think that's a way of putting it. I, I had always sort of, and I, I can't really blame people for this. I shouldn't do that, but it's, it's more what was modeled for me was more that, that intellectual pursuit is the anchor, right? And being certain and, and knowing the system and defending it, that's what gives you the security in, in life and in death. And uh, I don't think that it does. I think that can fool you into thinking that you've got all those things, but you really don't. I can't imagine why people would get offended if you reveal to them their golden idol was certainty and, and not actually God. Yeah, I get that pushback every once in a while. And, um, but that's okay, you know, and, and, and I understand that. And, you know, I'm more, especially in that book, trying to talk to people who are already sensing something, who have been told that, you know, you, well, you don't have strong faith. There must be something wrong with you. Sort of like Job's friends tell Job. And I want to say, well, there's actually nothing wrong with you. I mean, you shouldn't want to be in places of despair, but that's actually a normal part of the Christian walk. And, and, um, but you have to be in that place, you know, you have to be there to have experienced that in order to know it. You can't impose that on people who have not had that experience yet. And I, I generally try not to. I mean, when you write a book that anybody can read, it's different, you know, because you'll have people from all sorts of different points of view and different backgrounds and different, let's say, stages of faith. And some will appreciate more than others, you know. So, you know, people who push back too much, I, I just think to myself, well, they're probably not, they're just not at a point where, they're even thinking about this issue very much, you know, and that's okay. You know, we're just, we're all in different places. And, uh, you know, like, like I said before, when you write about God or Jesus or the Bible or Christianity, somebody's going to get mad at you. It's unavoidable. You wrote doubt is God's instrument will arrive in God's time and will come from unexpected places, places out of your control. And when it does resist the flight or flight impulse, Pass through it patiently, honestly, courageously for however long it takes. True formation takes time. Hey, that's pretty good. Did I write that? Yeah, yeah, you did. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah, highlighted, Dude. underlined it, circled, and, you know, earmarked. Um, Must have been that ghostwriter I hired for that <laughs> paragraph or something. So, all right. We need to pause to tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Since its founding more than 20 years ago, Campbell University Divinity School has been guided by a unique six-word mission statement, Christ-centered, Bible-based, ministry-focused. That mission statement captures our distinct integration of academic rigor, spiritual formation, and practical application. It lays the foundation for an unusual strong sense of community among a very diverse student body, drawn from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, age groups, along with the faculty and staff. It expresses the deep, shared commitment to our faith and willingness to engage with different points of view that characterize everything we do. We do not seek simply to inform students. Rather, we invite them to journey into transformation, challenging them and equipping them to develop their own understanding of what it means to be Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. 
we invite you to learn more about us. Check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs. Come to one of our continuing education lectures, to Visitation Day, or to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty to lead a retreat or Bible study or to wrestle with difficult issues. You can reach us online at divinity.campbell.edu. We look forward to hearing from you. Well, you know, for, for too many biblical scholars, they, they invite us into the deconstruction of our faith without any notion of what to do with the mess left in the aftermath. But I think what you do so brilliantly is you, you invite readers to reconstruct their faith in a very non-systematic way. So not here's exactly how you do it, but this is how you can think about it moving forward. How did, mm-hmm. how did you kind of kind of come across that notion of deconstruction and reconstruction? Um, yeah, I mean, deconstruction is easier. And again, just my background, the way I was trained, and I didn't really catch on to this until, you know, even after I left Westminster, but I, I was very proficient at deconstructing what people thought. And the only thing I had to put in its place, well, was this sort of a Calvinist system. But then once you start seeing that this, this, that system is actually part of a problem that you're dealing with, then you don't have anything to put in its place. And then it's very easy just to stay in that deconstructive mode. And I think I just, I, I, I think I just learned that I don't want to just do that. You know, I want to say something positive about what I believe and, you know, I've gotten comments to that end from readers over the years saying, this is so helpful what you're, what you're deconstructing, but I'm not yet quite sure what to put in its place. I think that's a very fair question to ask. And, uh, you know, that's why I, I, I work at that to at least point forward, you know, I, and the last thing I want to do is replace one system with another system. Here's how it all works together, but more to give people the at least to feel that they have the permission to, you know, hold their theology with an open hand instead of a closed fist. And to me, you know, if if you just move forward with that, I think that's going to take care of a lot of obstacles that you might have. You know, it's it's really is all about mindset and attitude. And whether you think God is cheering you on, or whether you think God is more of a stern schoolmaster waiting for you to screw up so he can fail you on a test you know and that that to me is actually it's a big issue that's you know what what is god like is one of these things that i've had to really think about and i still think about a lot you know um so yeah anyway that's that's sort of how i see that <laughs> last year you you launched a new podcast the bible for normal people and this uh, bi-weekly podcast engages in conversations uh, about the Bible and theology with leading thinkers. And this guest list includes Richard Rohr, Sarah Bessie, Walter Brueggemann, Rob Bell, and Audrey Assad. So, so what was the motivation behind the creation of this project? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a couple of people had said to me over about a two-year period, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? And I said, no, nah, yeah, sort of, not really, I guess, I don't know. And I just sort of dropped it. But you know, Jared Bias, and we do the podcast together. He's, uh, you know, a friend of mine going back a few years. And and we were starting to build this idea of the Bible for normal people. And one of the things that we hadn't explored yet was a podcast. So, you know, we were on the phone once and 
you know, I had sort of thought about doing it, but didn't really have the energy to sort of create it because I don't know how to do this. So I just didn't want to put another thing on my plate. But uh, Jared asked me on a scale of one to five, how much do you hate the idea of doing a podcast? And I said, well, I don't hate the idea if I don't have to do anything. <laughs> you know, basically the technological side of things. I don't want to, I don't want to learn a new skill set at this stage of my life. I've got trouble enough with the old skill set. So, so w at that point we just started and and we said, you know, we're, we're going to keep it more or less on focus. We're going to deal with the Bible and its interpretation, and you know, we'll gather sort of you know, listeners around it and we'll see where it goes, but it's, it's gone pretty well. You know, we think it's, you know, a lot of people have listened to it and, uh, and they download it every month. And, um, so that's, that's, and that's been a lot of fun. It really has been much more fun. It's, it's easier to talk and interview somebody for 45 minutes than it is to write a blog post because it's just engaging and interactive and stuff like that. And I think a lot of people listen to these podcasts anyway. So that's um, a good way to sort of get the word out there uh, more, more quickly. And I think more efficiently. Mm. Believe it or not, the creation of this podcast came out of the very same thing. We were tasked as staff to start writing around our areas and spheres of influence. And I said, it's a lot easier for me to talk and ask questions than it is for me to sit behind my MacBook and write. So, uh, right. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you've got this, this brilliant cavalcade of, of, of hosts, uh, of guests. Um, what, what would you say has been the most challenging episode uh, and topic to engage? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know if any of the topics have been, like, challenging or difficult. You know, some have been more, I guess, potentially controversial but that's not difficult or challenging. You know, that's just the way it is. So, I mean, it's, I don't, I, I guess I don't really have one, you know, I, I just, I think they've all been fun and, and, you know, maybe some have been more interesting to me than others, but is it, you know, what's fascinating to me is that sometimes I feel like, Oh, that was okay. And Jared says, this was fantastic. And then you have all these comments of people who thought it was fantastic. And I thought it was just more okay. You know, so it's hard to gauge, you know, the kind of, I guess, influence and impact that you have. But but for me, you know, it's just um, I don't really have, you know, those kinds of issues with the podcast in terms of like challenging issues or difficult issues. You know, I think they're all challenging. That's the ultimate teaser right there. Like go and go and download uh, because these yeah, are all brilliant. Read, listen episodes. to everything, people. Come yeah. on. You know? <laughs> now, the, th the thing is, there's things we've talked about that other people might consider to be challenging or disruptive. But, you know, I, I think most of our listeners probably don't feel that way. You know, they just, they're, the, the whole point of this is to explore and engage issues related to the Bible and how it works and how to interpret that. Um, to, to engage issues that people might not always feel safe engaging in other contexts, like whether it's church or home or things like that. So, um, so you know, if, if we are saying difficult or challenging things, that's by design. But personally, I don't find them to be, you know, challenging. Like, oh, gee, I don't know if we should do this. I, I there's nothing that's off limits. You know, we've just started putting things together. And, you know, as we're recording this, we're... Uh, you know, more than about half the way through season two. And, you know, we're starting to plan season three. And and uh, we just want people who are talking about interesting things 
concerning the nature of faith and how the Bible fits into that. You know, that's all. Well, you confessed uh, as we were starting this conversation that um, you took a break from finalizing a manuscript to do this interview. So that makes me uh, immeasurably fulfilled and my self-worth is <laughs> elevated for you know, like the next six months or so. So, uh, so what's this manuscript about? Well, don't feel too fulfilled. I, I take breaks with naps too for 20 oh, minutes. Oh, stop, so, stop. Uh, gonna, I'm going to edit that out. You, you can gonna... edit that out if you want to. Yeah. That and staring at the ceiling sometimes when I have nothing to say. But uh, <laughs> yeah, this um, this book is going to be called How the Bible Actually Works. And it's looking at how the Bible's characteristics push us towards realizing, you know, this this is really a book of wisdom. It's a book where we're being encouraged to figure things out on our own. And it, it, because it's it's an ancient book, it's an ambiguous book, and it's a diverse book. And those things are, you know, when you ask people, describe what the Bible is, you, you might get words that are much more, let's say, positive, like it's holy, it's authoritative, maybe for some people it's inerrant, it's all this kind of stuff, all, all of which is fine, I don't care. But it's also got these other characteristics that we tend to minimize, like it's just so ancient. And the distance between us and the biblical writers is something that it's really hard for us to conceive. You know, we're as far away from the time of David backwards in time as we are from the year 5000 forward in time. That's a lot of years have passed, and we don't share the same context. And that makes the Bible sometimes very difficult to understand and a little bit weird in places, too. You know, it's ambiguous in that it doesn't actually tell you what to do. You know, even something like the Sabbath law, you know, don't do any work. Okay, well, what's work? And you've got this whole history of Judaism and to some extent Christianity that have tried to talk about what is work and what is not work. You can walk this far, but no further, right? You can do this task, but only for so long. And that's because this this command given by God on Mount Sinai to Moses doesn't actually tell you what to do. Don't work. Okay, <laughs> You know, I, want, I need to carry a bucket to feed my calf or something. You know, can I, is that work or what do I do? You know, so um, and it's also diverse because the Bible is written over a fairly lengthy period of time where times change and people's personalities are what they are, that they perceive the same things differently. And, you know, that's why that's why you've got what sometimes people call contradictions in the Bible. but. Yeah, that's. I really don't care. That's a fine word, but I, I like to use the word more diversity because these are people at different times in different places, perceiving differently what God is like. You know, Jonah, which is you know a fairly late book written, is very positive about foreigners, about outsiders, about the Assyrians, right? Uh, Nahum, which is written earlier, is very negative about the Assyrians, and you know. Those two things, you can't just sort of lump them together and make them say the same thing. They're saying different things. And the reason they are is because the reason why they're diverse is because they come from different contexts and are written for different purposes. And when you put all these things together, then you ask yourself the question, okay, so what do we do with the Bible? Well, we have to accept the responsibility to do the same thing the biblical writers are doing, which is to think and discern what it means for the Spirit of God to be here and now, 
and not reproduce a bygone era. You know, because the Bible just won't let you do that. It's too all over the place. It's too, it's too clearly ancient. It's too comfortable in an ancient setting, not a modern one. It's ambiguous and it's diverse. And I think those are actually, those terms are very important for understanding the nature of the Bible and therefore the nature of what we do with it when we read it. So that's, I mean, I'm, I, I'm pushing this book more towards, okay, but what do we do with this now? You know, and, and the key word of the book is really it's wisdom. It's not about instructions or or rules to be obeyed, but it's more about cultivating a sense of wisdom in the readers and the readers to discern not just what the Bible says, but what the time refers what the time calls for. I guess that's the best way to put it. What the time calls for. So I, I feel like the natural question is how does the Bible actually work? Well, it, it works by modeling for us a process of wisdom. And wisdom is basically defined as, it's, I mean, wisdom itself is a paradoxical notion in the Old Testament. But wisdom is gained by experience and not by simply following words on a page. And you see the Bible basically exhibiting like the Jonah and Nahum example, you, you see the Bible exhibiting that all the time. Like what is, God, does God like Assyrians or does he hate them? Well, for Nahum, God hates them. And for Jonah, God loves them. Right. So will the real God please stand up? Well, <laughs> it's not that, you know, God is different, but people's perceptions of God rooted in their own experience that changes. And how the Bible works is simply to encourage us to sort of engage the text and take it seriously, but realize that our answers for today are not going to be bound simply in those words, but in bridging the gap between this ancient time and this contemporary time. So how the Bible works, it's not a mechanical process. It's, I think, more a matter of discernment, which, is, which has to do with wisdom. You know, and I think wisdom is a key, key concept in the Old Testament that doesn't get nearly enough airplay, at least with Christians that I know, you know, the, just the, the wisdom is a central idea in the Bible. And I think in the world of faith as well. And, um, you know, we would do well to focus on that word and seeing how the Bible teaches us and encourages us to follow the path of wisdom rather than, as I say in the book a few times, rather than God being a helicopter parent hovering over us to make sure we always get the right answer. Sometimes you just have to live and make decisions and discern what God is, you know, how God is perceived and how God is involved in particular situations. So when does this bad boy come out? I don't know. Next year sometime. <laughs> yeah, this is sometime in 2019. I think probably this spring, which is why I need to get this manuscript into them as soon as possible. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's my guess. Probably spring of 2019. Okay, so uh, winter of 2019, I'll be blowing up your email asking for an interview about the book. Okay. <laughs> All right, last question. This is a challenging one. Did you pipe in Augusta National Birds, or is it really that beautiful a day in Pennsylvania that the birds are singing a sound of music behind you? Um, I am sitting in a room that is pretty small, 7 by 10, but it has literally um, seven windows. It's all windows. And I have the door, the windows open. And right now you're probably, 
hearing power tools. Somebody's doing something outside, but there are a lot of birds out here. Yeah, I, I've just, you know, I live, my yard has a bunch of trees and birds are very happy. Mm. And so, yeah, I didn't do it just for you. This is just the way it is. <laughs> I just picture, you know, Pete ends the, uh, the, the bird feeder, just feeding these birds as he's doing this brilliant interview. <laughs> like St. Francis, I'm just like communing with nature while I'm talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully you don't walk <laughs> naked into the woods as we're having the conversation as well. No, absolutely not. And uh, yeah, I, I, I do all my nature watching from inside anyway. So. <laughs> all right. For those that want to stay connected, uh, visit PeteEnds.com. You can also follow mm-hmm. on Twitter at PeteEnds. Um, Pete, thanks for persistently challenging us to think critically and to rethink our theological assumptions. But more importantly, thank you for taking a break from this manuscript uh, to elevate my uh, self-worth. <laughs> oh, that's not healthy, but I'm happy to oblige. <laughs> now, now go see a therapist and don't be codependent. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 